Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Back in a book of the Bible for the next uh, three weeks. I'm not sure what we're going to do the last week of Titus. It's an o- of February. It's an open week, but then beginning in March, we will be back in the book of Matthew. But Titus for today, it's on page 998 in the Pew Bibles, if you're following along there. I really have two sermons to preach this morning, um, but I promise I won't take two sermons worth of time to do so, and I think you'll see that they're related. The first sermon is from verses 1 to 4 of this first chapter, which really lays out some of the main themes um, for the whole book, so it kind of orients us to the letter of Titus. The second sermon will be in verses uh, 5 through 16. Verses 5 to 9 introduce an urgent problem. Uh, Well, uh, 10 to 16 is an urgent problem in the church, and 5 to 9 is kind of what Titus is called to do about that. So we're going to be looking at these two sections. They relate, but um, treating them Distinctly. So let's begin with the first paragraph here. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word, Titus 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. How many of you here have ever had significant back or neck pain? Significant back or neck pain. I know a number of you are raising your hand. Some of you I see, I know that you've been there. And there's been some who have just got out of surgery for back issues. And others have broken their back recently. So some of the problems are very significant. But even if you're like me and you've simply had... Um, insignificant back pain or neck pain, you know what an effect it can have on your life. It's not just whatever is going on in your spine that is the problem. It affects everything. The pain, um, it makes it so you can't work the way that you want to work. You can't even play the way that you want to play. Sometimes you can't sit in a chair Um, You can't even sleep the way that you would like to sleep. When your spine is not in line, it messes with all of your life. It can wreak havoc on your life. It affects your whole body, if I can put it that way. Well, if that is true, physically speaking, of our back, our neck, how much more true... Is it as it relates to our spiritual life? 
One of the biggest problems in the evangelical church is that we have misalignment. We are misaligned. What we believe and how we live are often out of line. What we believe and how we live often get improportionate emphasis. What do I mean by that? Evangelicals pride themselves on orthodoxy, having straight theology. But sometimes they don't put so much emphasis on straight living, on what people have called orthopraxy. And when these two things aren't lined up, they can wreak havoc on our lives. But not only that, they can also cause major pain within the body, within the body of Christ. The book of Titus addresses this problem. It's only a small letter, 46 verses. I read in one of the chapters in my Bible reading this morning was over 60 verses. So just one chapter in, in a Bible reading can be longer than the whole book of Titus. But although a small letter, it contains some big truths that have profound relevance for our lives as believers. The opening verse of the letter, or the opening verses that we've just read, lays out Paul's purpose for writing very clearly. I would summarize it this way. What we believe and how we live need to line up. What we believe and how we live, they need to line up. Can we put that up on the screen? Right here in verse 1, Paul lays down what I would call three notes of a major chord, a chord that will ring over the entire letter. I think you'll see this as we continue in the weeks ahead. Look there at verse 1. He's writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect and of their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. There are the three notes in the chord. Faith, truth, and godliness. Paul wants to further the faith of God's elect. The people who belong to to God. He wants their faith to advance. That's what he launches his letter by saying. Notice in verse 4 in his address to Timothy how he addresses, I mean Titus, how does he address him? He says, my true child in a common faith. The letter ends with this word as well. The very last couple of verses of the letter end on this note of faith. What is he speaking of, this common faith? I believe he's referring not just to the act of believing, he's referring to that which is believed, a body of doctrine. That's what he means when he talks about a common faith. Well, what is that body of doctrine? What is that faith? What is it that is believed by the elect? The truth. The truth is what is believed. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The people that Paul is writing to, they are good evangelicals. They hold to the authority of the scriptures. They hold to the centrality 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But for Paul, that's not enough. He pushes on further. He wants to further their faith in the truth of the gospel in such a way that it produces godliness in their lives. Godliness, which is the fruit of faith. As evangelicals, we are so set on preserving the gospel of grace, which we ought to do in our doctrine. We can't compromise in. But so often we leave out the purpose of the salvation that has been accomplished by Christ through faith, through grace. It is godliness. It is a faith that bears fruit that produces good, good works. Paul wants this for the church, or the churches, I should say, in Crete, and he wants it for us as well. This body of doctrine, he wants embodied in the lives of believers. What we believe and how we live need to line up. We need to have a living faith, maybe another way to put it. That's the title of the sermon series, A Living Faith. And verse 1 makes it clear that this is Paul's aim. We're going to see this theme, this chord, if you will, um, throughout the letter. It'll become very obvious in some places, but I think it's actually right here in verses 2 to 3 as well. Paul has announced his aim to further the living faith of the church. Then in verses 2 to 3, he grounds this aim in a theological truth. It's grounded in the hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life. Another repeated theme. Another theme that shows up at the end of the letter as well. So it must be very important for Paul and what he's trying to get done. What is he trying to get done? By talking about the hope of eternal life. I think he's doing something with time here to further the faith of the elect. He says that we have a hope of eternal life, so that's something that awaits us out there in the future, but it was promised long before time began in the past. So he's showing the, the, the span of this eternal life, promised in the past, a promise that has benefits all the way into the future. So you have this promise before time, that pertains to the end of time, which was proclaimed at the proper time by Paul in his ministry. The point seems to be this gospel, this doctrine that you believe in, it's larger than life. It's God's gospel. That's where he starts. The emphasis on God in Titus is massive. God promised it. And God never lies. But it's also a gospel with eternal implications before the ages began, extending to the end. So the implication is, if who you are in Christ has this cosmic eternal significance, then shouldn't that shape the way you live right now? 
What you believe and how you live need to line up. Paul's life was also an example of this kind of aligned living. You may not have caught it at a first read, so I want to clue you in to what he's doing here. Notice how the letter starts. The first words of the letter, Paul, a servant. Look at your footnote. Throughout this chapter, look at your footnotes. They matter. Literally, a slave. Paul, a slave of God. Look at how he ends speaking of his ministry in verse 3. All that he is doing is by the command of God, our Savior. As we walk through this letter, we're going to see um, some ideas that are very common. One is insubordination. The other is a lack of submission. People are not coming in line with the way that God has ordered things. They are not coming in line with God's commandments. Paul is going to address this in his ministry, but before he does it, he says, not me. I'm a slave of God, and all that I do, I do by the command of God. My life is in line, not with my own agenda, but with God's agenda and my apostolic commission. It's God's ministry. This same principle needs to apply to each of us. And it needed to apply to Titus as well. So we've seen Paul's overall objective for the letter. He wants what we believe and how we live to line up. But what role will Titus, whom he's writing to, what role will he play in this overall goal? This comes out in verses 5 to 9. So we're kind of done with the first sermon, the overall message of the book, and now we turn to the first thing within this letter. Verses 5 to 9 teach us this. We need leaders whose lives and beliefs line up. Leaders whose beliefs and whose lives line up. Look at verse 5 to see where I'm getting this. This is why I left you in Crete. So, I haven't dealt much with the context, but Paul likely um, shared the gospel on the island of Crete, and a lot of people came to believe, and Paul left Titus on Crete, and we're told here why. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The word put into order in the Greek is epide ortho say. Epide ortho say. You know that word, ortho. Where do we use the word ortho in the English language? Orthodontist. What do orthodontists do? Put your teeth straight. Okay? That is what is implied in this word. He is being directed to put something straight. Paul's goal for the letter, so you see in the connection, Paul's goal for the letter is for believers' lives and their beliefs to get in line. Now, what he's saying is his goal for Titus's ministry 
is to get things in line within the church. And if things are going to be put straight within the church, the first order of business, number one, is appointing elders. In Paul's writings, you see that the word elder, pastor, and overseer are interchangeable. Um, You even see that in this passage in front of us for referring to one office. And the first order of business for Titus is to put elders in place. The word directed at the end of verse 5, as I directed you, again, we can't see this in the English, but it is the same root word as the word at the end of verse 3 that Paul is referring to with his ministry, the word command. Paul was living in line with what God commanded him. Now Titus needs to live in line with what Paul had directed him to do. It is stronger in the original than we see in the translation. And this is why he's being strong. He's already given the instructions. He says, as I directed you. But to date, Titus hadn't got busy with this order of business. What he's saying is, the email's already in your inbox, bud. You need to put a red flag by that. You need to turn that message on fire. Of all of the things on your list to do at Crete, this is numero uno. Your highest priority within your ministry is to appoint elders in every town. A plurality of elders in every town where there is a church. Why is this critical for the health and the well-being of the church? Well, maybe an illustration will help, especially um, a lot of you who are grieving right now. Uh, grieving the loss of the Chiefs to the Bengals last week. When you're going through hard times, as some of you um, people, uh, I'll call you, <laughs> that, that are doing, one of the best things that you can do is to remember the good times, right? I mean, we even do this at funerals and stuff. We remember these good qualities. So remember the good times. Remember two years ago. Remember when they won the Super Bowl. Do you remember that? But do you remember what happened earlier in that season when Patrick Mahomes sustained a knee injury that threatened to take him out for the whole season? But it didn't. And why didn't it? Because there was a doctor There was a doctor there, an orthopedist specifically, who set Mahomes' knee straight. With great skill, he put that knee back in line. And without that straight knee, this is the logic, you have no Mahomes. Without Mahomes, you have no Super Bowl win, period. I think that's kind of the logic of Paul in his ministry And in this letter, if the churches are going to be what God wants them to be, 
They've got to have healthy leaders. The church is more than its leaders. It is more than its leaders. So much more. Um, We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Every member has a ministry. We believe in that. But there cannot be healthy churches if there are not healthy leaders. You can't have a church that's in line if you have not put in place elders whose lives and beliefs are also in line. Notice in the book of Acts, chapter 14, what does Paul do? His first missionary journey, the apostle Paul, he goes through Asia Minor, he's proclaiming the gospel, people come to believe, then he gets stoned, left for dead, he gets back up, it's one of the most amazing things in all of the Bible, I would have gone home. What does he do after he's left for dead? He gets back up and he goes back through all of those towns that he was run out of. And what does he do there? He appointed elders in all of the churches. It was a number one priority for Paul. And he's saying to Titus, it is a number one priority for you as well. You need to act like a skilled orthopedist and appoint healthy elders in the church at Crete. What is a healthy elder? That's the first question we're going to deal with. And then why was this important for the churches at Crete and why is it important for us in our day? You won't be surprised to hear that a healthy elder is someone who's Lives and beliefs are in line. Paul lays out in the first few verses the requirements for a a healthy elder, and then he lays out in verse 9 a main critical responsibility for an elder. These requirements in verses 6 through 8 have to do with who the elder is, has to do with their lives. The responsibility in verse 9 has to do with what they do, what they teach. What they teach and what they believe are obviously linked up. So that's why I say life and belief are found here in verses 5 to 9, just like they are found in verses 1 to 4, and you'll see throughout the book. But let's look at verses 5 to 9. This is why I left you in Crete, he says, so that you might put what remained into order And appoint elders in every town as I directed you, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Notice the first requirement for an elder in the church. I believe it's a blanket requirement. It's the requirement for him to be above reproach or as some translations say to be blameless. Let me be clear And I'm not just saying this for my own benefit. This does not mean perfect. 
I think what it means is that there is nothing that there's nothing that you could accuse an elder of that would bring shame to the gospel. They need to live lives that are in line with the gospel. That's the main thing that is being spoken of. But if you want to know what, how do you know if somebody fits within that description of being above reproach, what follows tells us what it means. That's why I say it's a blanket requirement. What, what follows in the rest of verse 6 and in verse 7 and verse 8, they tell us what being above reproach means. Verse 6 deals with an elder's family. He needs to be, assuming that he is married, the husband of one wife. Literally, he needs to be a one-woman kind of man. That's how the original would read quite literally. A one-woman kind of man. If you're thinking of maybe being an elder someday or you're um, somebody here, which all of you are who are members, who are involved in ratifying our elders each year, the question I have is, what kind of man are you? Are you a one-woman kind of man? A man who is desiring to drink from his own cistern? Are you the type of man who has wandering eyes? A one-woman man is not given to sexual immorality. Doesn't mean they're perfect. They won't have struggles with lust. But it does mean that they will keep unto her and her only for as long as you both shall live. It also says in the ESV that his children should be believers. Now again, I don't want to interpret based off of my own self-interest, but I think as the footnote again, read your footnotes, says I think faithful is a better translation. We're told what it means that they would be believers or faithful in what follows, that they would not be given to debauchery or to insubordination. We can't make our children believe the gospel, but the question is, are we running our home in such a way that our own children are reasonably in line with our leadership, or are they completely out of line? If we can't even maintain some level of structure within our own homes, how are we going to do that within the church? That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, if a man can't manage his own home, how will he care for God's church? And speaking of that, in verse 7, Paul reminds Titus that this is God's house. He says, you're stewards. Pastors and elders in this room, you've heard me talk on this topic so many times, so you know this is a hobby horse of mine. The church doesn't belong to you. You didn't pay for it. God paid for it with the price of his son's blood. There's pastors that love to talk about my church, my people, and there's a sense in which there's a responsibility that is there, but we have to remember it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God, 
And that should inform the way we serve as stewards within God's house. Above reproach. Beginning in verse 7, we are given five things that are getting more into the nitty-gritty that should not mark the life of an elder and six things in verse 8 that should mark the life of an elder. I'm not going to go through each one individually. I just want to point out an observation that somebody else had that really stood out to me. In verse 7, the things that should not mark an elder's life are all sins that stem from self-interest. And that's one of the problems we see within the greater um, Christian world with leadership. Leaders who are self-interested. So notice how these have to deal with self-interest. Pride or arrogance. Anger. A desire to drink too much. That's self-interest. Desire for dominance. A desire for wealth. All wanting things that are going to serve me. But the things that should mark an elder's life, verse 8, are things that are centered on others or are character qualities that are rooted in denying yourself and your own self-interest. Being hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. It's noteworthy that Paul begins with character qualifications before he moves on to competence qualifications. As a church that is congregational in its government and is involved in ratifying its own elders, we have to remember this. In a church that is a larger church that requires some levels of competence, we have to remember this. Where does Paul start? Character. He spends three verses on character before he moves secondly to competence. Character before competence. I think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Do you get the point? Godliness before giftedness, character before competence. I don't want to give the impression that elders are or that they are to be perfect people. They are sinners bought by the blood of Christ just like everybody else. We are sheep before we are shepherds. But there is a requirement by God for the sake of protecting the flock. That these be people, that their lives are in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they can do good for others. Character before competence. But, and we need to hear this too, competence cannot be skimped. We cannot skimp on competence. Look at what he says in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He must have a firm grasp, in other words, on the apostolic teaching, on sound doctrine, on the truth. As one commentator says, and I think he's right, it's Bob Yarborough, who's now at Covenant Seminary, he was at Trinity, 
Ministers had better know their stuff. Ministers had better know their stuff. Why is that? So that they will be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. The sound doctrine that needs instructed, why is it important? Well, literally, again, clue, read your footnote. That word sound could also be translated as healthy. The church needs healthy leaders, those that have character, who will dish up healthy meals for the church, healthy doctrine, so that the church can become healthy. Or as verse 13 says, sound in the faith. Again, that word could be translated healthy in the faith. Do you see the logic? Healthy leaders, healthy teaching results in healthy church. But their teaching, their instruction, holding to sound doctrine is not only for building up the church, it's also for counteracting false teaching. They need to be able to rebuke those who contradict it. I like the way John Calvin says it. Some of you parents know what Calvin's talking about, although the application's different. He says a pastor needs two voices. Two voices. One for calling in the sheep. The other for driving away the wolves and the thieves. Two voices that are needed. Not all tender. Sometimes it's got to be tough as well. And that leads us to the final section of this chapter. Why does the church need leaders whose lives line up with their beliefs? It's because there's lots of people out of line leading others astray. We are so big today on thinking everybody's okay. You know, don't ever, the worst word that a Christian could ever say is heresy, right? But have you ever noticed that Paul is constantly talking about false teaching in his letters? Have we gotten, are we no longer susceptible to false teaching in the church? In Crete, there were false teachers, not just out there, but that had made their way inside the church, and their lives were out of line, and they were leading others astray. Let's read about them in verses 10 to 16. For there are many who are insubordinate. There's our word again. Empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Okay, do you see why they needed healthy leaders at the church in Crete? 
there were people that were competing for the attention of the new believers in these new churches that were not sound in their doctrine. They were not sound in their faith. They were not healthy. They were not good. Their lives were out of line. They're insubordinate. They're greedy. Their doctrine was out of line. They were teaching Jewish myths. Now, we're not sure what Paul means by Jewish myths. I think the most likely option is that they're teaching something that has to do with Jewish food laws. He talks about human commands. We see that word in Mark 7, for example, which is about food laws and things along those lines, where they're saying, you can't eat this. They're giving a command of man, but they're making it seem as though it is the command of God. Regardless what exactly they're teaching, they're living in a way that contradicts sound doctrine, and they're teaching in a way that contradicts sound doctrine, and so they must be silenced. They're leading others astray, deceiving people, leading whole households astray, Paul says. In verse 12, Paul gives us a clue as to why this was critical for Titus as well as the elders that he would appoint that these false teachers be silenced. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is a quote from a Cretan philosopher in the 6th or 7th century B.C., Epimenides. And what he seems to be saying is that there is a predilection amongst Cretans that has been there for centuries now to listen to liars because there's been all kinds of liars in their midst. But not only to listen to liars, but then to lead lives that are in line with lies. So the Cretans are particularly susceptible to this type of false teaching, to be led astray by a false gospel. And that's why these false teachers need to be silenced, but also that's why the ordinary believers within the church at Crete need to be rebuked to not go after this false teaching. Because if it's unhealthy teaching, it's going to result in unhealthy faith. Rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. He closes an argument by making a distinction between true believers and false believers, between healthy leaders and unhealthy leaders. Look in verse 15. He says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. I think what he's saying here is that those who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ through faith in Christ. They don't have to worry about what they eat. These guys are saying you can't eat that. They, you don't need to worry about what you eat. You're clean. You, all things are pure for you. But to the unbeliever who's not been cleansed by the blood of Christ, it doesn't matter how strict he is at adhering to these food laws, he's unclean because he's not been covered by the blood. But then he lands with a critical verse. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. 
This is where Paul has been going throughout this whole chapter. Faith and life need to be in line. Truth and godliness, which leads to good work. His word here in verse 16 is so critical for us today. There are many voices in the world today who are identifying as Christian voices. We're not just a small movement on an island in the Mediterranean. We live in a globalized world, and there are many voices that are competing for your attention. A question that you may have, or that maybe you want to give guidance to your children who are going away to college, or um, to people that you are discipling, who should you listen to? Who should you listen to? Paul gives us a test here that I think is really helpful and really instructive for us as leaders in this church as well. He says basically this, do you want to know if you should lend somebody your ear? Then maybe you should first look with your eyes. What do you see in their lives? Do you see people who profess to know God, but who deny them, deny him with their works? Do you see arrogance? A quick temper? A lush who's parading his freedom in Christ as an excuse to pretty regularly drink in excess? Do you see somebody who's greedy? Maybe for money, but maybe more often in our world, greedy for building his brand, building his church in his way. People who claim to know God, but seem by all outward indications anyhow to deny him by their works. If this is what you see when you look, you should think twice before you listen. Or do you see in somebody not a perfect life, but generally above reproach, living in a manner worthy of the gospel, repenting of sin when it happens, keeping short accounts with people, somebody who's hospitable, shows interest in others, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, someone who loves God's word, who knows God's word, and who teaches God's word without tampering with God's word to use it for his own purposes. If that's what you see when you look at the lives of leaders, then at least they've established credibility for you to listen to them. That's the point that Paul's making about leaders, and it's important. But his bigger point that he's making in the whole book is that what we believe and how we live need to line up. And this is not a contradiction to a gospel-centered way of thinking about our lives. It's not. We've got to stop as evangelicals acting like the things that we do don't matter if we're really going to be all about grace. There's not a single one of Paul's letters that says it that way. 
We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but saving faith is never alone. It actually has a purpose behind it, that we would do good. There is an organic connection between gospel faith and gospel living, between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, between faith and life. We are called to a living faith. What we believe and how we live, they need to line up. God, may you enable what you require. Let's pray. Father, we need your grace for all things. Grace for justification, grace for ongoing sanctification. Work in us that which is pleasing to you in your sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.